This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Virtually everything we've built has been based on the assumption that our past climate and weather will resemble our future climate and weather. Hi, welcome to EM Weekly, your emergency management podcast. And this is your host, Todd DeVoe. This week we are talking about how climate change policy will impact emergency management with Alice Hill the Senior Fellow for Climate Change Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Before we get into the interview, I want to make a challenge to you. And please comment on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter, or if you listen to the podcast on one of our other uh, platforms, link of comment deck. What have you done to improve the profession of emergency management? That's the big question right there. What are we as professional emergency managers, what are we doing to improve our profession? Think about that for a little bit. And if you haven't done anything, what can you do? Now on to the interview. Welcome to EM Weekly. How are you doing today? Wonderful. Thank you for having me on. This is exciting to have you on the show. Reading your bio, your your background is amazing. Um I, you know, you you got into policy, you you got into politics a little bit, but realistically, you're working on some on some really cool uh, items regarding security and climate change and, and how that works. As emergency managers, one of the things that we take a look at is you know the climate change today. How is it affecting us as far as you know forecasting disasters regarding natural disasters, fires and hurricanes and tornadoes and stuff like this. Realistically. What is it with the climate change that's really going to affect the United States and Canada and, well, I guess the, the populated world for that matter, and then also the, uh, the, um, the up-and-coming building communities? Well, climate change will affect virtually everything uh, from how we build, where we build, our health. Uh, it will have uh, effects on the supply chain, on... Uh, economic uh, development. And for emergency managers, I think you'll see more frequent extreme events. Uh, and unfortunately, they may happen simultaneously. So there'll be greater demands for uh, emergency response going forward. I also think that there'll be uh, concern about um, when we build back uh, that we need to be serious about building back better because the events in the future uh, will accelerate and in all likelihood will worsen uh, as a result of climate change. One of the most interesting books I read in a long time, and I forget the author, and I'll look it up for everybody, it's uh, it's called Water Wars, and it was written by, uh, I forget her name, a, a female author uh, out of India, talking about how 
water contamination and pollution in developing nations um, is is really going to be like the way oil was for a long time, where we're going to be at war for water. Is this due to climate change, or is this just due to environmental changes, or to the way we have treated our planet? Well, many scholars believe that uh, water will not be a source of conflict in most instances. But, uh, of course, when you overlay climate change, where uh, we will have deeper longer, more extended drought, uh, there is concern uh, that it that assumption that it won't lead to conflict uh, could be, no longer be correct. And certainly, as we see nations attempt to dam major waterways in order to preserve water for themselves, where their downstream neighbors will see water reductions, uh, it there will um, naturally be tensions uh, over that issue. But climate change is a story of too much water. You'll see extreme precipitation, rain bombs, uh, all water falling all at once or sea level rise, or too little water where you'll have uh, droughts um, and uh, the monsoon patterns changing so that uh, and the dry season gets extended, um, and that can affect agriculture, obviously. Um, <laughs> so exactly as far as like with water expecting, affecting agriculture and specifically in the you know, western part of the United States where I live in California, Southern California, um, we're having issues specifically with the really dry season and then a, a really wet season. And when it when it's wet, it's great because we're like, okay, awesome. Our snowpack is up. We're going to have drinking water. Awesome. But then all these beautiful plants grow, and uh, now we have fuel for the fires. And then in you know August, September, October, the, uh, the the winds come up, and all of a sudden we have these devastating fires that come ripping through, you know, like Paradise, for instance, uh, with the campfire. Um, you know, is there something, is there a way we can predict these things or is it just the climate's going to do what it's going to do and we're just going to have to deal with it when it comes up? Well, our modeling is improving on, uh, and our predictive capability is improving. Uh, we also have more real-time knowledge using drones, sensors, uh, about where fires are erupting so that we can move out more quickly to, um, put out those fires but more wildfire is in our future because uh, we are hotter and drier and uh, some of the vegetation is dying. But as you've noted, if there, it's followed by um, rain, uh, there is more vegetation and there's more to burn. Uh, and, of course, um, it's all complicated by possible uh, mudslides uh, with that greater rain because the slope is uh, of the a hill or whatever is uh, is bare, uh, and it becomes a difficult cycle, as you know, uh, for emergency managers uh, to be able to cope with. You know, just in the paper today, I was reading that the up in paradise specifically, um, the drinking water has been contaminated by benzene from the plastics that were burnt uh, during the fire. And then the other day in, I forget what magazine it was, I think it was Emergency Magazine, uh, they were talking about the lead levels that got into the air uh, during the fires. So the fires that we're having here aren't just the wildland fires which are affecting our, our people that just happen to live over there, right? It's it's really impacting everybody. Um, 
you know, are, are there things that we can do to policy wise uh, to help with that recovery or the, the mitigation um, of these other toxins that happen from the fires? Absolutely. One of the challenges we see with climate change is that virtually everything we've built is been based on the assumption that our past climate and weather will resemble our future climate and weather. Um, of course, that's no longer uh, accurate, and it's no longer a safe way uh, to make building choices, including the types of materials you use, how you actually construct, and where you build things. So um, going forward, as we uh, see these tragedies unfold where communities are severely impacted by wildfire, flooding, um, extreme heat events, uh, when there are choices for future building uh, or retrofitting, we need to uh, establish policies that help people uh, make the choices that will keep them safer in the future. So a typical example of that would be um, building in a more fire-resistant way, uh, not having open soffits, uh, having a uh, fire-resistant roofing material, uh, building materials, uh, and may even eventually get to land-use decisions. Similarly with flooding, that would be elevating the home, uh, making uh, choices that uh, keep the uh, first floor, if it should be uh, flooded, uh, make it less costly to uh, recover. And the federal government, because it gives so much money out in the post-recovery period, uh, can help drive greater mitigation of risk in the future. And right now, FEMA is engaged uh, in that effort, uh, under the Trump administration, there was an act uh, passed about disaster recovery that drives a lot of money towards that pre-event prevention of future harm. Yeah, that, that's a the, the mitigation grant is going strong, and I think the nice thing about it is is that right now, if you are in a jurisdiction that does not have a hazard mitigation grant. There, you can pretty much find, and I hate to say this, you know, find a disaster to t attach to, and you, you're going to be able to get approved pretty quickly. They're they're being very liberal with um, that that process. So for those of you that are out there that don't have a mitigation plan, I recommend uh, if you're in a district that or in a jurisdiction that has been near or has had a disaster in the last few years, you, you might be able to to uh, be able to get that paid for. So that's a that's a huge uh, burden taken off of that jurisdiction. And I, I would just add, there's a lot more money available now uh, than there ever has been historically. So uh, to the extent that uh, communities can tap into that, as you've noted, uh, it can be a huge benefit um, to reducing future uh, damage. Yeah, I talked to Brock Long uh, earlier this year uh, before he resigned, and he was talking, I was like, like billions of dollars sitting in, in a fund yeah. for us. Yeah, it's like around six or eight billion dollars, something like that. Uh, it's six percent of the disaster recovery for uh, the annual on the annual basis. Uh, I believe right now they have something like three billion dollars to okay. give out. Okay. So uh, that's a lot of grants, uh, far more than when I was in the Obama administration. Uh, there wasn't a billion dollars available for this type of thing. So um, this is a chance for communities um, to 
uh, lean forward and um, make a commitment to making sure that they are um, preparing for the worsening impacts that are uh, ahead from climate change. So talk about policy specifically now. And you kind of alluded to it earlier regarding, you know, making your your people build on stilts if they're in a flood zones and stuff like this. Now, Hurricane Harvey specifically, and I found this amazing, that a lot of the homes that were uh, destroyed by the floodwaters was because they were built in, on the map, it even said so, in the reservoir. What can we do policy-wise to make sure that things like this don't happen? Or are we just being driven economically by people who want to build and and we're just going to open up the floodgates for them to, to build? Well, you're um, pointing out a um, one of the challenges in this area, and Houston is a great example. Um, before Harvey hit, uh, Houston um, had uh, favored development and had uh, very little uh, requirement uh, for building codes or enforcement of those building codes. Uh, then Harvey Whitson has revealed that uh, building went on, as you've noted, in areas that were, according to the Army Corps of Engineers, designed to flood. Uh, and uh, Houston City Council had a change of heart. They have now imposed an elevation building code and are working uh, towards helping people uh, make better choices as to um, preparing for floods. Also, uh, the reform of the National Flood Insurance Program in Congress right now, uh, the proposal includes a disclosure requirement that would require um, homeowners to disclose if they have suffered from previous flooding. Um, And uh, if uh, FEMA can uh, progress along in making its maps both more accurate as to historical risk, but also uh, future risk. Potential uh, homeowners, um, purchasers of property can better inform themselves. Absolutely, policy can drive more information to homeowners and can also um, provide incentives for communities to make wiser choices about where they allow building to occur. For example, not allowing future flood insurance from the National Flood Insurance Program for uh, building occurring in areas that are hazardous or that are uh, at extreme risk of flooding. Um, well, yeah, I, I agree with you that, that there has to be some stuff done right there and that we, we do have tools that we can use uh, specifically with, with flood insurance and, and really you know, telling people that build in those in those danger zones that we're not going to bail them out. And I know there's some controversy on that. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk to you about buyout programs. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we connect people with the latest technology possible, whether it's mesh networking, augmented reality, or real-time translation, allowing people who need help to find help immediately. Better matters because lives matter. Welcome back from that break. Thank you so much for listening to the sponsors. And and without them, we couldn't put on uh, programs like this. And we're having a really great conversation uh, right now, specifically uh, regarding flooding. And before we went on the break, we're talking about you know putting some rules and regulations and and realistically revamping flood insurance so we're not. Um, 
you know, insolvent, if you will, when it comes to, to flood insurance. But on the other hand, I know communities are trying to, and the federal government has also helped out with buyback programs, specifically in Louisiana and, and some of the low-lying areas. Um, I know they're using it in Houston as well. What do you think of buyback programs? One, do they work? And two, should we expand them? Well, buyback programs uh, can be very helpful to communities uh, that want to move away from danger. There are some challenges with them. Uh, the first is that uh, they are voluntary. So sometimes what you have have is on a block, uh, say there's seven homes, five of those people want the buyback, uh, buyouts and two don't. So that leaves the two homes there. That may require that there continues to be uh, water, power, other infrastructure maintained as well as the road. So it doesn't accomplish as much as the town may have hoped in terms of providing open space and uh, really being able to have people move away from the danger. The other thing is it reduces tax revenue. So there have been instances, for example, after Sandy, where certain mayors in certain towns said, "I'm thank you, we're not interested in a buyout program because that will cut the revenues to our um, town, and that means that we will have difficulty providing the services we need to provide. And the final thing is, when you look at climate change going forward, the need for buyout programs as flooding increases, wildfire increases, is going to be enormous. So really the question is, how are we possibly going to pay for all of this? And then uh, how are we going to make sure that those who are uh, most disadvantaged uh, are going to be able to move to safer ground? It's a very complex issue. It's a dialogue that the country needs to engage in because the impacts of climate change are now coming quickly and people are going to need to move out of harm's way. So areas like Louisiana, which are, or I shouldn't say Louisiana, but New Orleans, that's already, you know, underwater, literally, um, and it's going to get worse for them. What do we do? I mean, we can't move, or maybe we can, um, whole cities like that. I, I, and we're talking about the idea that in, I don't know how many years it is, I was looking at a, a documentary on it. I mean, but it's within our lifetime that we're going to see, you know, like New York City having regular floods, almost like Venice, right? Where they, Venice, Italy, not Venice, California, where they have uh, regular floods, like daily. Uh, is this going to happen in the United States soon, or... Is this something we can stop? I mean, what 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 can we do to fight back, I guess, against climate change? Well, to stop the climate impacts, we would have to um, cut our emissions. There's little uh, scientific uh, doubt. There is virtually none uh, as to the cause of why climate change impacts are coming, and that's because of an increase of greenhouse gas emissions. Unfortunately, even if we cut our emissions to zero today, we would continue for a certain period of time to experience uh, greater impacts from climate change. We uh, can anticipate that we will continue to suffer from sea level rise, and that sea level rise, um, really, we can't turn it back. Um, so we will uh, see greater flooding around the coast. We can, uh, to protect against that flooding, in some instances, as Manhattan 
will do and is already embarking on will harden themselves. They will put a seawall up and they will protect themselves against uh, future flooding. But we can't do that for all the United States for a variety of reasons, including cost, but some of it's just uh, the type of soil that's there uh, and other measures. So that will require that people who are living uh, along the coast, some of them will need to move inland. And that means we need to think about where, help the receiving communities build the necessary infrastructure to handle the new um, people who will be moving in, and then support that new location as we help those who are left behind in the areas that are at risk. So you will see people move out of Miami. Uh, you will see uh, people move from the coast of Alaska, which they are doing already. And uh, we've just had more recent information that the coast of California will suffer from uh, sea level rise sooner than was anticipated. If you just pause and think Rhode Island, our NOAA, our uh, federal agency has said that Rhode Island in 2100 could see nine feet of sea level rise. That is profound. And it's not going to happen on January 1st, uh, 2099. It will be happening uh, quickly over time. And there will be communities that are unlivable, and some of them will literally slip into the sea. So we need to figure out how we're going to help people move out of dangerous way and get established elsewhere uh, and begin lives in new areas. You know what I find interesting is there's a few uh, affluent neighborhoods uh, here in Southern California, uh, not too far from where I'm sitting right now, who have fought against um, some of the flood maps that were out because, uh, number one, their insurance went up. Number two, uh, they said it was going to be hard for them to sell uh, their homes uh, because of it. And they successfully were able to get the maps changed to make it less damning for them. Um you know, I, I, I looked at this article in the paper and I started thinking, I'm like, well, why are we allowing political considerations to be done for something that's, you know, hydrogeographical, you know, and, uh, and, you know, is it the money that's coming through that's, that's paying for this or is it, uh, or are we being really super, uh, I don't say conservative the other way around, are we being super, or, you know, are, are we using the maps in, in a way that, maybe not be 100% true or or maybe that we're predicting stuff that can be, I don't know, debated? Well, uh, mapping um, is not an exact science. You know, you have the uh, a map with a 100-year uh, floodplain and you have a line drawn. Well, water doesn't really move that way. Water might come in a few uh, feet one way and a, a little less. It, we just can't predict it that closely because we don't exactly know all the factors that are going in. So FEMA actually has a new program where they're trying to get um, a, a better sense on actually, on how they map. So it gives a better uh, picture of whether you, that you're not just in or out. If you're out, it doesn't mean you're necessarily safe uh, under the current maps. And that hasn't been well communicated. 
but of course, we do see that um, people's homes are often their largest investment, and they um, it's hard for them to hear uh, that a map is putting them in at indicating that their home, their greatest investment, is at a higher risk. Uh, it may also have significant impacts for the rate of insurance they have to pay. So in Del Mar, California, you saw the Coastal Commission attempted to impose, um, not impose, but encourage communities to talk about retreat from the coast. And uh, eventually the Del Mar community rejected uh, that discussion as reported in the media. Part of the concern was the effect on property values. Climate change will negatively affect some property values. It will possibly affect others. In Miami, we're seeing that elevated locations are now increasing in value as the coastal locations um, suffer more flooding. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, you know, we, we see this happening already. I mean, where when you have storms coming in and some just the waves coming in and you, you have areas of, of you know, Orange County, California that are flooding every year. It just happens. Huntington Beach, Seal Beach, Newport Beach, you know, they all have those those issues that go down. Um, right. You know, and in Delmar, as you brought it up, they have um, a whole complex condominiums that are on a, on a seawall basically now um, that are falling into the, into the ocean, you know, and, and what do you, you know, the, the city had a conversation on what to do with that, whether they can actually, again, go back to buyback and, and uh, uh, tear down or, or what, you know, and, it, and it's going to affect people again, uh, their economics. And, and I was listening to uh, one of the stories on NPR and one guy was discussing the fact that he wants to sell now while he still can and I'm like, wow, I'm thinking about this. That means the person who's buying after him is going to have to deal with all the effects of that. But he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to have to disclose it. <laughs> I'm like, right. you know, it's just kind of. Uh, the kind question of, is, who is ultimately going to pay? It's right. like a case of hot, you know, hot potato. Who's going to end up with the, the hot potato that uh, has greatly reduced in value? It's. Not clear yet. We are just at the beginning of understanding how these problems will unfold. So wrapping this back up into the the concept of for emergency management, and I think this is where we we kind of go. What is the role of the emergency manager? So we have the response role, and then we have the mitigation role, and this is this is where we're at right now. Can we, as emergency managers, influence policy or? Should we, as emergency managers, be out there talking about these things to the populace, uh, you, you know, saying, hey, this is what's going on uh, to in our jurisdictions? You know, what's our role? Well, I think that emergency managers can be an important leader in helping communities understand what's really at risk. You're seeing it on the front lines. You're up close. You see that if a community doesn't have adequate evacuation routes, it could be deadly uh, for those who are left behind. You've seen that if a home isn't built uh, to code or if it's not um, uh, sufficiently invested, the homeowners haven't invested in fire prevention measures, that could mean the home burns. And you can communicate that to leaders, uh, mayors, city council, to inform them that they need to plan and account for these risks 
that emergency managers can't save everyone and prevent this unless there's greater focus on risk prevention. I think that your message will be well received because you're a trusted, um, you're trusted communicator on the issue of what happens to people when disaster strikes. And to share that message, you can help change the course of future disasters. So coming over here to the uh, to the end of the interview here, and, and this is always the, the sometimes the hardest one. Um, what book, books, or publication do you recommend to uh, people coming into for emergency managers or, or the general public for that matter, but specifically with GMs? If you think of or general GMs, EMs, um, thinking about that for uh, for climate change and or policy for climate change. Well, that's an easy uh, question for me to answer because I've just completed a book. Uh, it will be released in November. It's co-authored uh, with Leo Martinez. The title is Building a Resilient Tomorrow, and it focuses on policy approaches for making sure that we are resilient in the face of future climate impacts. Speaking of resilience, um what can we do to ensure a, re- a disaster resilient community? I think that it's a whole of government response. So it's not, if we just look at it, emergency management is separated from the planning departments, um, from the uh, building code uh, decisions that will be made by communities, from uh, the permitting process, we won't be safe. We need to have emergency managers be in the room with uh, all the people making decisions about how a a community will live, work uh, in their particular area. And that means that you need to do scenario-based planning that will look at an acute emergency, but also look at these slow-moving emergencies, for example, drought. Uh, where there'll be inadequate water uh, for some households. How can we plan now to accommodate those risks in the future and make better choices? You know, hopefully we won't need as much uh, help from emergency managers uh, if we do better planning in the future. And I think that's where um, we can make a difference in the trajectory that we're on. If you could say one thing to all of the emergency managers in the world, what would it be? It would be uh, you may not appreciate how important your voice is in communicating to all of us what's at stake and what can be done to better protect ourselves, our homes, and our loved ones. That was nice. Thank you. How can people find you? Oh, I'm uh, on LinkedIn uh, or I'm on Twitter as well. So uh, welcome uh, people uh, reaching out to me. Uh, and I'm very um, passionate about these issues of thinking and acting in ways that can make us more resilient going forward. 
So when's your book come? When's it going to be uh, released? It will be released by Oxford University Press in November, and it focuses mostly on the United States, but it shares stories uh, from across the globe uh, about people who are struggling with exactly the issues we've discussed here today, uh, greater wildfire risk, flood risk, heat extremes, uh, and uh, drought, lack of water, uh, and then the real health risks that come from climate change and what we can do about it now uh, to have better outcomes in the future. I'll be looking forward to that for sure. Um, And every year we do the uh, top 10 uh, books that belong on an emergency manager's bookshelf. We actually released that in November. uh, So maybe that will make it for for next year, but for sure we'll be checking that out. And uh, please, thank you. When you uh, release it, let me know and and send me the links and and, uh, we'll share it and and, uh, take a look at it. I will. Absolutely. I appreciate it. I do believe that it's uh, a book that's designed for um, people who aren't every day immersed in the issues of climate change, but certainly who care about what we can do to have better results. And I think that is an emergency manager, perhaps, uh, who may not need to study uh, climate change and how it unfolds, but certainly is dealing with the aftermath of what climate change brings, the uh, disaster recovery and response that so often accompanies climate change impacts. Well, thank you so much. There's so much more to talk to you about, but we're, you know, we are restricted on time. Um, I'd love to have you on again sometime. Great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Appreciate it.